Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM, Channel 127. Welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast, driving home in your vehicles. Hello to everybody else in the Middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugelsang, here for the next couple hours, we're going to be with you right here on channel 127 at 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you. You know, the worst thing that could happen to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s memory would be for us to forget that he was an activist, driven by politics, driven by faith, to reduce MLK to a marble statue of a long-ago great man to lean on a few quotes devoid of context. I mean, one major political party only seems to know part of one MLK quote— and they use it to dull his movement year after year. We remember Dr. King as a civil rights activist, but they've buried his very Christian commitment against war, his very Christian commitment for organized labor. At the time he died, civil rights was only one facet of his ministry. The worst thing would be to forget how he was a rebel who threatened an entire power structure and why. So you've probably heard a lot in the news about Jonathan Igg's acclaimed epic new biography, King, A Life, hailed by The Washington Post as the most compelling account of King's life in a generation. Ken Burns has called it a miracle. Mr. Igg's other works include Ali, A Life, as well as his works on the birth control pill and about the life of Lou Gehrig. But nothing will prepare you for how epic in scope this biography is, drawing on recently released White House telephone transcripts, FBI documents, letters, oral histories from a pool of people who knew Dr. King that's getting smaller and smaller every day. It's Dr. King like you've never seen him before. Jonathan Igg, what a great pleasure. Welcome to SiriusXM. Thank you. Thanks for that nice introduction. Well, I want to thank you. And if my dad was here, he'd thank you as well for giving us a book that shows again why he was dangerous and why he wasn't this safer alternative to Malcolm X we've been sold our entire life. You've written a book about how he was a radical driven by a very acute sense of morality. Yeah, we've watered down his story so much that uh, really in 
compelled me to write this book. Um, I was interviewing people for my Ali book who knew King, and um, I just began talking to them about what he was really like and asking them, do you think we need a new King biography? And one after another, from John Lewis to Jesse Jackson to Andrew Young, they all said, yes, you've, society has forgotten just how dangerous, how radical he was, how unpopular he was in the last years of his life. And I think the national holiday has only hurt that in a way. You know, it's great. We, you know, he deserves to be recognized, but we end up simplifying it to the point that I don't even know if King would recognize himself anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think occasionally you'll get a documentary like A King in the Wilderness that'll show how deeply unpopular he was. But it seems that the very power structure Dr. King fought against so devotedly has found a way to neutralize his sharpness, to neutralize the the moral acuity in his arguments. And and I, I read that this came out of your, your work on Ali because I, I would guess the pool of people who remember Dr. King and were his familiars is getting very small. That's absolutely right. In fact, I remember when I was interviewing Dick Gregory, he said to me, you know, the big difference between King and, and Jesus is that we have videotape and audio tape of King and that even then we're still managing to turn him into this sort of sainted mythological figure. We need to keep him real. And um, the opportunity to travel the country and meet those people, um, I just recognized that was that was something I, I had to do um, as, as quickly as I could. And I'm lucky that I, I got it started you know, before COVID hit because I was really able to travel the country and meet scores of people who knew King and knew him well, including, you know, like his barber, including his childhood friend that he played Monopoly with um, when they were kids. And and young MLK refused to cheat at Monopoly, even when his brother you know, tried to cheat, get him to cheat along with him. Well, I, I mean, I approach the book excited that, like Jesus, this is a story that tells what a dangerous activist this man was. And like Jesus, his real message has been watered down by the same power structure he opposed. What I wasn't expecting was how rich and moving and just fascinatingly beautiful your depiction of his childhood was. I realized there was so much I didn't know about how he grew up and the way he grew up. Did you feel that his childhood had been underserved in previous histories? I really did. And remember, he only lived to 39. Yeah. So I spent at least a quarter of my book on his childhood and his education um, because it's it's so formative and you know he didn't live long enough for it to you know shrink in importance at all and and so much of his of his belief so much of his radical christianity comes from his childhood from being raised you know in a family of preachers in a deeply segregated american south and seeing how the church had a had an opportunity to fight that segregation in a way that maybe no other institution in america had and just seeing the the, the inspiration of his parents um, his brother and sister, even his grandparents, all of that, you know, just growing up on the street that he grew up on Auburn Avenue is such a hugely formative part of his life. And, and I wanted to just dive into all of that because you cannot understand this man without understanding his childhood. And without understanding his father as well, you you go very deep on Martin Luther King Sr. And I, I thank you for it. Um, it was fascinating to to really do a deep dive on this relationship and see how obviously MLK Sr. had a huge impact on his child, and yet their personalities and even their worldviews seem so far apart in so many ways. It was mind-blowing to me to think that Martin Luther King Sr. spent the first 12 years of his life farming as a sharecropper. 
Um, and yet just, you know, a generation later, his son is winning the Nobel Prize. Um, that is one of the most extraordinary stories in American history. And one man, Martin Luther King uh, Sr. and his wife, Alberta, deserve the credit for really, um, if you want to talk about, you know, seeing the American dream come true, um, they just made this astronomical leap and and made it possible for their son to be a world changer. Uh, but it was not easy. You know, uh, Martin Luther King Sr. leaves the farm at age 12, walks with his shoes slung over his shoulder so he doesn't wear them out, comes to Atlanta and remakes himself, has to really learn how to read and write for the first time and ends up, you know, leading a church because the church is one of the few places that black people could speak out back then and not risk their lives or their careers. And yet he was such a contradictory figure, not unlike his son. He was so given to anger, uh, so given to rage. He had worked so hard and labored so hard and yet really had a temper. And also it was interesting to see how the young MLK was kind of kind of put off by the emotionalism in so many of the gospel preachers he grew up around. Right. Daddy King um, you know, grew up in the home. His father was an alcoholic and an abuser, uh, physically abused his, his family. And Daddy King grew up swearing he was never going to be like his father. But he did spank the children, um, you know, with a belt, sometimes on the front lawn so that the whole neighborhood would see. And he um, he grew up uh, to become you know, a, a really powerful and inspiring figure in Atlanta, but he was also a country preacher to the end. He was a, very emotional and, and young ML, as they called him, um, or little Mike, uh, because he was Mike before he was Martin Luther King. That's right. He grew up just wanting to be different from his father. I guess that's true for, for most of us. We wanted to be different. We want to be better. But he really... Um, at first, didn't want to be a preacher at all because it was what his father did. But then he decided he was going to be a more intellectual preacher, a more socially conscious preacher, um, more in the mold of, say, you know, Benjamin Mays, the president of Morehouse. And so King is always struggling to sort of escape the the reach and the um, and the the um, the anger that his father held. And yet I think of his father being this 12 year old boy abandoning the sharecropper's life and trying to learn to read. And then his son, a generation later, being so uncommonly adept at school. I mean, he skipped all these grades and went to Morehouse. I'm amazed at the amount of education MLK Jr. sought when he was so young. One of the really interesting questions about MLK Jr. is where does that ambition come from? He's, he's trying to enroll in kindergarten the year before he's eligible. He asks his mother if it's okay to sneak in. And then he's skipping grades. He goes to Morehouse. He's by far the youngest kid on campus. And he's short, you know, to begin with. So even in, um, then, you know, he's, he looks puny. One of his first names was, was Runt. First nicknames at Morehouse was Runt. So where does that, ambitious, that ambition come from? He really wants to be something special. He really feels like he is put here to accomplish great things. And some of it certainly comes from wanting to fight Jim Crow, wanting to fight racism, feeling like he's got a mission. But there's something bigger there, too. There's just an energy burning in this guy from day one almost. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you argue in the book uh, that, that MLK essentially became MLK on the 5th of December, 1955. Can you explain for our listeners why that day is the big turning point? He was he was a young dad. I don't even think he'd gotten his doctorate yet, right? That's right. He was not yet Dr. King. He was a young, had a young baby at home. He was pretty new. It was his first year running his own church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. He had escaped from Atlanta. His father wanted to come back to Atlanta, but he said, no, I'm going to make my own church. And he was really just looking to get his bearings. He had just turned down an invitation to join the local NAACP because he said he was too busy. 
And yet the bus boycotts begin. Rosa Parks you know, refuses to give up her seat on the bus and the people of Montgomery have to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to stay off the buses on Monday? Can they really unite and make this happen? And how long can they stay off the buses? This is all up in the air. And they mm -hmm. need somebody to address the crowd. Thousands of people turn out at this church, Holt Street Baptist Church on December 5th, 1955, waiting for instructions. Are we ready to do something here? And how much are we willing to sacrifice? And King is asked to be, to be the speaker. Why? Not because he's the leader of the community. It's because he's not the leader of the community. It's because That's he's not right. famous yet. He hasn't Has made no any baggage. enemies. Yep. No baggage. Nobody who's going to say, oh, I don't like that guy. I'm not going to. They hadn't heard him before. And he had a reputation for being a pretty good speaker, too. So it's, he gets up there that night, and, and that's the moment where he steps into this role, and he finds his voice. And he finds this message that will really be the message that he lives by for the rest of his life, that we're not looking to tear down American democracy. We're looking to make it better. We are not trying to fight you. We're trying to join you. And he calls on the principles in the Bible and the Constitution to say, this is, if we're wrong, the American Constitution is where is wrong. If we're wrong, the Bible is wrong. We must be right. And we must do this to make America a better place. And, and that is almost irresistible. Even white people have a hard time finding a flaw in that argument. It works to this day. And it's amazing because Rosa Parks were sold as this innocent lady who, who wasn't an activist when in reality she was. She knew that was her day. It, it almost diminishes her agency. And yet to think that Dr. King just sort of in the moment, it was the truly a case of the right person, the right time at the right second of history. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you one more thing about that that I love. Um, King was asked to take this role of leadership. And he agrees. He rushes home to try to write something for this um, moment. He has to make the biggest speech of his life. And he tells Coretta, rushes in the house, tells Coretta, I don't know what I just agreed to, but I got to go. And he runs back to his little office in the, in the parsonage, and he has 20 minutes to try to write his speech. And he has a panic attack. And he admits this in his first book, says that 10 minutes, he just froze. He, 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 he you know, could barely breathe. He gets, pulls himself together, gets out the door and rushes off to this to this event and knows that he's that, that that this is a signal moment in his life knows that everything is about to change for him and that's the kind of courage that he had to throw himself into the unknown and of course his you know his belief in god is a big part of what makes that possible well, absolutely. And I mean, it is the piety mixed with the human failings mixed with the intense torment, I think, that's going to make so many people see even more uh, parallels to Christ in his life. I mean, you, you really talk about how he struggled with depression. Even as a child, there was always a, an intense depth to this young man. It really was. Um, you know, he twice attempted suicide as a teenager. Um, and it's hard to say, you know, how serious of a suicide attempt it was. He jumped from a second story window when his grandmother got hurt and then d jumped again when she died. And uh, but all his life, really, he struggled with that emotion. We forget that when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, the news came to him when he was in the hospital being treated for what he called exhaustion. But That's what Coretta right. described as depression, he was just, you know, worn out, worn down and needed a break. And many, many times in his in his life. Um, he would check into the hospital for an exam and just ask if he could stay a while um, because he, he he was under extraordinary pressure, never got a break. Um, you never hear him really enjoying um, a, a, a peaceful night at the movies. He was his entire career was just under extraordinary stress and he suffered. He had feelings, you know, he had doubts. And it's important to to acknowledge that and to remember that he was human. 
I collect photos of King laughing. I have a whole file I keep of just photos of him laughing because they're they're so special and they're so frequently not the photos that are shared in the world. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. In going through the book, it struck me how the fact that the the window for interviewing folks who knew Dr. King is closing means that quite likely a lot of those people are willing to speak much more openly, say, than they would have when Coretta Scott King was alive. You 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 tell a story that I'd never heard before when he was at Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, where he fell in love with and almost married a young white woman. And then at his graduation, uh, there was a whole row of young women who all thought that they were his steady girlfriend. (laughs) And it seems like these are stories that um, certainly lend us a lot of uh, fascinating insight into the man, but also stories that probably wouldn't have been told 30 years ago. I think that's right. I think a lot of people were respectful of Coretta and not wanting to say anything that might hurt her feelings. And um, there were a lot of people still with us who I was able to interview who spoke to me in part it's also just as you get older you're you you feel more free about expressing your opinions but i was able to talk to some of the women who king dated at, in boston and i was able to talk to people who um, knew him as a child one of his best friends growing up was a woman named june dobbs um, and she used to talk to king about marriage and about um womanizing because king was very upset that his father had a reputation for womanizing and king swore this is teenage king swearing to june dobbs that he's never going to be that way he's never going to cheat on a woman and june laughed and said he was already dating two or three girls at the time and that uh, he really struggled but he, he tried to be better about it he just couldn't always reach the uh, his own aspirations for his for his behavior do you personally feel that it can only benefit a biography of a great man like this to be able to talk about the human failings. I, I quite honestly, I, I think that it makes the achievements that much more noteworthy to know we're not dealing with an infallible marble statue. There's no question to me that, you know, if we want, if we need for our heroes to be perfect, then we're never going to have any heroes. And if we expect people to be perfect before they step up or to drop out, if they have, a, if they make a mistake, then we're never going to have anybody bold taking the reins and, and, and trying to teach us again. So, and I also think King's achievements are so great that nothing can take away from them. And his flaws only make us um, understand him better, I think. 
Yes, I agree. Um, I'm I'm thrilled about the amazing reviews and perception your book has received. I was a little bit worried that the revelation about Alex Haley might somehow overshadow the quality of the work itself. Everyone heard we discussed it on this show before the book was released. Your discovery in your research that um, Playboy magazine had misquoted Dr. King's comments about Malcolm X, Alex Haley. Apparently, back when cutting and pasting really meant something, moved one part of one interview later on, and we now know, thanks to your scholarship, that what King said was not nearly as negative as the version that was published. Did you have any sense, Mr. Eig, when you made this discovery and documented it, that it would become such a, a, a media firestorm? No, I had no idea that it was going to be this big. You know, there are five or six fairly large revelations in this book that I thought might make news. But I also realized that probably none of them would because people don't read books very carefully. And um, that's just the way it goes. You know, I've had, I've had that experience with other books, um, but I was really pleasantly surprised. And I discovered this um, about a year ago and I quickly shared it with a lot of historians who teach classes um, about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King to make sure that they would stop teaching the, 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 this false quote in their classes. And they said to me, wow, this is really big. This is important. We got to get this out there. And I said, let's just wait until my book is out and then, then, we'll, then, we'll, then we'll spread the news. So I'm really thrilled that, that so many people seem to be responding to it. And I think it forces us to rethink the relationship between King and Malcolm X, that um, it's the media that really has tried to cast them as antagonists and that they were much more open to learning from each other. Exactly. Um, well, now you're going to make me have to ask, what was a revelation you discovered that you thought would get more ink than the Alex Haley edit? <laughs> I don't know if I thought it would get more, but I, I discovered his first incident of plagiarism. He plagiarized a high school speaking right. contest and came in third place. Um, and um, I also discovered uh, some tapes that Coretta recorded just after Martin Luther King died. And she reveals on one of those tapes that she knew that he was um, messing around with another woman before they were even married. Um, so things like that, that I thought oh, also the fact that like Mahalia Jackson did not inspire him to give the I have a dream portion of his speech um, at the March on Washington. Right. He came up with it all on his own. Mahalia, God bless her. I love her. She does not deserve the credit for that one. No, she said it while he'd already said it, and then she was just repeating it. But because a lot of people remembered her saying it that day, the mythology just evolved into being she prompted it. Yeah, that's so often the case. You know, our memories um, tend to embellish, and um, we, 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 we change the stories a little bit to make them a little richer. Um, but in this case, that takes away agency from, from Dr. King. You know, he's the one who decided, you know, my time's up for this speech, but I'm going to take, take another chorus. And I'm going to add on to what I had prepared. And he fell back into the I have a dream speech. He says, he repeats the refrain, I have a dream several times. And on the third or fourth time, he says it, Mahalia Jackson shouts out, tell him about the dream, Martin, mm -hmm. you know, um, really echoing him. Um, and uh, but she's not the one who inspired it. As you point out, he was hospitalized for depression more than once. He he knew his government was trying to crush him. They were he knew they were tapping his phones. He was arrested repeatedly uh, under physical threat, under violent threat. Um, it really seems that he lived the, his own passion. He lived his own walk up to Golgotha in many ways. One of the things I appreciated by the about the book is how seriously you took his faith. And it does really seem like his belief in a power greater than himself was the thing that got him through these years of strife and these years of hatred and really these years of financial struggle because they he left the family with basically nothing when he went. 
Yeah, you know, I consider myself a fairly spiritual guy, but I have never really encountered up close. And I have friends, rabbis and priests and um, imams, and I have never experienced anybody living their faith so boldly as Martin Luther King. And I wrote about Muhammad Ali, who lived his faith pretty boldly. But Martin Luther King inspired me in a whole new way because over and over again, he's challenged, he's, he's knocked down, he's attacked even by his closest friends and advisors right. telling him, you know, just, just let's just focus on one thing. Let's just work on the thing we're good at. And he says, don't you understand me? Don't you know that I've been basing all of my work on, on the teachings of the Bible and that I can't just focus on voting rights. I can't just focus on racism. There's poverty, there's inequality, there's materialism, there's war. This, this is what we're called to do, all of it, not, not the parts that are easiest. And even as he's you know, stabbed in the chest and bombed and, and, uh, as, the, and the, as the federal government brings the full weight of it, the FBI down on him, he's, he, he just keeps going deeper and deeper, more and more committed, um, not, not backing down, doubling down. That's why I appreciated that you focus so much on how the anti-militarism and the pro-labor stances were core parts of his ministry towards the end of his life. I've, I've long said we we neuter his message when we make it only about civil rights. By the time he died, he was fighting for white sanitation workers in, in, right. in Memphis as well. Um, do you feel right. that did, did you feel going into this book that all the different things he was fighting for at the end had been underserved, that we are only as young people taught just the civil rights part? No question about that. And I would go even further and say that it wasn't just the last years of his life that King began to focus on it. It's just that we began only began to hear him in those last years of his life. But if you look even in the late 50s and early 60s, when he's traveling in the north, he's calling out northern racism. He's saying you're no better than Birmingham here in Chicago. Um, he's saying it early, not not just in the late 60s. And it, it, he knows that it's risking the support of, of his most important financial backers, but he doesn't care because it's the right thing to do. And he's tired of the hypocrisy. He's tired of the hypocrites in the church who are telling him to be patient, to wait, you know, don't ask for too much at one time. He's he's just incredibly bold. And um, and we do him a real disservice by saying that he was the the conservative alternative to Malcolm X. Amen. I've always hated that. And I'm so grateful to you for writing a book about what a radical he was. But before I let you go, sir, it's really an honor. And I thank you for joining us. There's a lot Dr. King predicted that has come true. Sadly, I mean, he warned us that we were slipping into greater segregation, even in the north and then the blue states. And he warned us about uneven income growth and mass incarceration. I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but what do you think would dismay him about where we're at? And and what do you think would make him feel like we might be on the right track? Well, I think, you know, in those last few years, he saw sort of a moral rot at the core of American society. And I would say he would say that that rot is still there and it's still spreading. Um, But he never lost hope. And I think if you look at some of the people who walked in his footsteps, like Harry Belafonte and John Lewis, they never lost hope and they never lost their willingness to be outside as radicals, their willingness to to bear the heat for what they believed in. And the fact that there are still people out there, it's harder today to be heard in spite of social media, um, you know, which gives everybody a voice. Those voices tend to go off into the ether. So um, I don't know how we can unite those forces of energy that that can, that, that follow in King's path, that, that hear his voice. But I think, you know, 
it starts with listening to his words again. It starts with reading his books and not letting the media or anyone else get in between King and your mind and your heart. Let's 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 hear his words again. In context, uh, Jonathan Ig, such a pleasure. Do yourself a favor and get Mr. Ig's new book, King: A Life. It makes an outstanding gift as well for the fan of quality history in your life. Uh, thank you so much. What's next for you now that this is done? I know that the, your your book about the pill is being adapted into a play. Yeah, um, there's some TV stuff in the works too. I'm very excited about some documentaries, um, and I'm starting on a new book, but I'm not talking about it yet. So well, congratulations. thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm really going to try to um, stick with King for as long as I possibly can. I want to <laughs> keep talking about him until people won't listen anymore. Well, thank you. I've Then come back anytime. We'll go even deeper on the book because I think it's important. And I think that you are doing history itself a great service by reminding us of how powerful this man and how, how threatening to power this man's work really is. Jonathan Ike, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. So you already know the mass incarceration statistics. We spend $75 billion as taxpayers on this business. America has 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's humans in cages. Two years ago, about 421,000 people went to prison, but people went to jail in this country almost 7 million times. Some have been arrested and will make bail within a couple of hours or days, but many others are too poor to make bail and will remain behind bars until their trial. 13 million misdemeanors or minor crimes, petty offenses, violations, ordinance offenses, whatever you want to call them, are filed every year in the U.S. and they trap the innocent, they punish the poor, and they make America more unequal. And they're handled dramatically differently depending on the violator and the jurisdiction. Now, depending where you are, some misdemeanors are are like spitting or jaywalking. But the consequences of being charged with a misdemeanor, if you're the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time, whether you're guilty or not, can be life-changing, especially if you are 
poor. Alexandra Natapoff served as a federal public defender in Baltimore, Maryland. She's gone on to be an award-winning legal scholar and criminal justice expert. She's the author of Snitching, Criminal Informants, and the Erosion of American Justice. She is a professor of law at Harvard University. She has testified before Congress, and her essential new book is Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. It's a book that shows why and how 10 million people go into jail cells every year for minor crimes like loitering, disorderly conduct, how these arrests and convictions disproportionately affect marginalized groups like black males and poor people, and how those charged with misdemeanors are often locked up because they just can't afford bail or as punishment because they can't afford to pay fines and fees. And this book will show you fines and fees are two very different things. It's a great pleasure and honor to welcome Professor Alexandra Natapoff to SiriusXM. John, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry for the very lengthy introduction, but I want to set the book up and, and do it justice. There's there are a wide range of crimes that qualify as as misdemeanors. Can you give us a sense of, of how broad that spectrum is? Of course. So the thing to remember about misdemeanors is that this is mostly what our criminal system does. Eighty percent of the American criminal docket, that is the number of criminal cases filed every year, are misdemeanors. Uh, and so we could talk for many hours about this uh, this bottom of the pyramid of the criminal system, if you will, because it's really mostly what our criminal system does. Right. So you asked me, what is a misdemeanor? Technically, uh, in, in lawyerly terms, a misdemeanor is an offense for which a person can serve no more than one year. Typically, we define anything above that as a felony, but, but it's not a very helpful line. Misdemeanors are low-level offenses, some of which can be uh, somewhat serious. DWI, for example, driving under the influence is typically defined as a misdemeanor. Domestic violence is often defined as a misdemeanor. Obviously, those are serious matters. But the majority of misdemeanors are things that you wouldn't really think of as criminal at all. Trespassing, loitering. In half of all states, speeding is a misdemeanor. Jaywalking. Mm. Things that we treat people as criminals for. We find them as criminals. We lock them up as criminals, but they're not scary or dangerous or harmful in the way that we think of in connection with criminal law. And that is the problem with the misdemeanors, that we're treating millions of people as criminals who haven't done anything deserving of this kind of punishment. And it seems like it might be by design, but it may have just evolved to be this big, sloppy legal process and thousands of low level courts, which, as you know, and document produce so many wrongful convictions. I will confess I'd never heard of the expression meet them and plead them before. But because most defendants, many defendants don't have lawyers, uh, you point out that legal rules and evidence are often ignored and so many people wind up going to jail because they can't afford to pay the bail or the fines or the fees. Was that your experience as a public defender in the in this realm of meet them and plead them? Yeah, so that's a great, um, a great question. Is it by design? Uh, we might ask the same thing about um, tricky aspects of our democracy. Are we doing this on purpose or is it by accident? And some aspects of the criminal system, this sprawling, enormous, sloppy, unfair space uh, are are the result of not caring 
of being sloppy, of letting people be treated as criminals when they shouldn't be. But sometimes it is. Um, if not by design, at least we know we're doing it and we could do it otherwise and we choose not to. So you, you mentioned the term medium and pleadum, which is yeah. a, a derogatory uh, complaint a term for the reality of much of public defense in this country, which is that we underfund public defenders, that the lawyers who are appointed to people who cannot afford um, to, to pay for a lawyer themselves. We know we underfund them. We know they're overwhelmed. We know they have too many cases mm -hmm. uh, to to represent properly. And so when we do that, when we fail to support that part of our adversarial system, we can say something like, yeah, it's by design. We know we're doing it. We know what the outcomes are and we do it anyway. Yeah. I was a bit shocked to read about how in South Carolina's summary courts, it is designed to have the police literally act as the prosecutor, the negotiator and the witness. You know, there are things about the misdemeanor system that I think most Americans would feel surprised or even shocked that we do. It just doesn't conform to what we think of as a legal system governed by rules with lawyers and courts and supervision and due process. So in courts all over the country, South Carolina is, a, is an egregious example, but all over the country, we have courtrooms, low-level courtrooms where um, police prosecute their own cases or where prosecutors are um, uh, running quickly through hundreds and hundreds of cases and pleading people out without lawyers. When I say pleading people out, I mean uh, offering them plea deals and pressuring them right. to plead guilty when they're not represented. Uh, courts in South Carolina have now been sued because it's a violation of the Sixth Amendment to pressure people into pleading guilty without a lawyer when they're entitled to counsel. But this happens all over the country. and. Uh, and what we get then are millions of people who are convicted of crimes, who go to jail, who are punished, and who bear that mark of criminality and the uh, the burden of right. that punishment without um, without having been represented by counsel, without the careful scrutiny of the time and the resources of a proper court. And it blows my mind because for so often it's it's just for for nothing. I mean, I, I thought the Sixth Amendment guaranteed the right to counsel. And yet, as you document in the book, so many people on the line for misdemeanors plead guilty without ever even getting a lawyer. Doesn't the Equal Protection Clause guarantee that you can't throw someone in jail because they're too poor to pay a fine? So it's such an important um, lesson. And, and I have this conversation with my law students all the time. Sometimes the criminal system works badly because the rules are bad, right? That we do, we're not protecting people or we, 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 we need to change the rules. And sometimes we have rules on paper and we just flout them. We just don't. Yeah. <laughs> we let people um, go through court with a criminal court and get convicted without a lawyer, even though they're constitutionally entitled to it. We lock people up for uh based on their inability to pay a fine or a fee, even though you're absolutely right. Uh, the Supreme Court held decades ago that it violates the Equal Protection Clause to incarcerate people 
solely because they uh, cannot afford to pay a fine or a fee. So part of the misdemeanor system is explained by bad rules, and we can Mm -hmm. fight over those rules and try to change them. And part of the misdemeanor system is explicable because we have, you know, decent rules and we violate them. We flout them. We don't. (laughs) devote the resources necessary to make them real. And that, I think, boils down to the deep, profound failure, which is that we don't care enough to do it properly. And we don't care enough about the people who are passing through the system to preserve their dignity and their rights and their lives and their ability to thrive. And that's a massive moral failure. That's not just a legal failure. That's a human and moral failure. And it keeps bringing me back to the question of how much of this is just the sloppy way the legal system has evolved and how much of it is an orchestrated way designed to criminalize poverty. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. Is it true that in 22 states, misdemeanor court judges don't have to have law degrees to send people to jail? There's a phenomenon in the United States uh, called the municipal court. These are these are courts run by cities and many states permit the judges. I'm going to say this slowly because it's counterintuitive, permit the judges in those courts uh, to not be lawyers. It's an old, old phenomenon. It dates back actually to before the revolution, back in the Mm. day when, um, you know, counties and cities were kind of on their own. And we continue to permit this sort of legal light situation. In other words, we have courtrooms where maybe the judge isn't a lawyer. And the prosecutor is actually a police officer and the defendant doesn't have a lawyer. And so people can be arrested, charged with a crime, convicted and sent to jail without a lawyer in the room. And I Mm. and again, I think that most Americans would think that that can't be right. That can't be how we actually run the criminal system. And yet here at the bottom, the bottom of the pyramid in this enormous sloppy world of misdemeanors, we do it all the time. Yeah. Can I ask you about bail? Because I'm very pleased that bail reform has become such a hot topic and that people who never really considered it before are now finally beginning to learn a bit about it. I, I always thought bail was there to guarantee that people just appear for court. If they're charged with an offense, bail was very simple. It's it's we, we want you to come to court. We're going to guarantee you show up there. So we're going to have this bail. 
And as you document so powerfully in the book, that has devolved into a methodology of cruelty against the less fortunate. You're right. Bail has become one of those um, national conversations that has revealed so much about other aspects of the criminal system. And the misdemeanor system, the whole criminal system is like that. You pull one thread and all of a sudden you start to see the whole fabric unravel a little bit. And bail has bail has been like that. So you're right. Bail was originally designed as an amount of money that a court would impose on a defendant to it ensure that they come back to court when they're supposed to, and then they're supposed to get their bail back. It has devolved into, uh, and, and I want to distinguish these two pieces of the puzzle, although they're related, as a way essentially of punishing poor people. Because mm -hmm. for wealthy people, bail is not uh, making bail. In other words, coming up with the money or coming up with the security is not a problem. You can exactly. buy your freedom. But exactly. in so many jurisdictions, poor people and working people just can't afford $500. They don't have $500 lying around. And so they stay in jail. It's one of the ways that we punish poverty um, by depriving people of liberty based on their poverty. But there's another piece of the puzzle, which you've referred to um, as we've gone along, which is the, the question of, do we do this by design? Mm -hmm. And this is a feature of the misdemeanor system that we always need to keep an eye on, which is that bail is also an enormous revenue stream. That's and we have permitted the privatization of that revenue stream through bail bondsmen. Mm -hmm. And so that money uh, has become one of the, one of the uh, revenue sources that that supports much of the criminal system itself. And so, so because we've permitted essentially the commodification of liberty in this way, we might say something like, yeah, it's kind of by design. We kind of do it on purpose. I mean, and it's fascinating as well, because when we talk about the fees that these people are made to pay, obviously we're told all the time, like we're told lottery helps fund education. Your traffic tickets help make the town safer. We go into funding the overall system. So it is sold to us as a, a positive civic trait that we're going to be levying these fees and fines for these low level crimes. And we're going to improve the quality of life for everyone by doing it. But it does seem that it's just a fundraising tool. And when we talk about cops who give tickets on commission, it seems that it's very, very deliberately unevenly applied. So your reference to the, the police who issue tickets on commission, I think that the country really looked that problem in the eye after Ferguson. So as everyone remembers, when uh, the police killed uh, uh, teenager Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, there were massive protests and attention, and the Department of Justice did an investigation of the Ferguson Police Department. And that report, which became very influential and, 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 and read really all over the world, revealed that one of the reasons or one of the motivations behind policing in Ferguson was to raise money, that the mayor would put pressure on the sheriff and the jail to raise money every year to meet the municipal budget. And that was part of the motivation for the kind of over enforcement, particularly over enforcement against black people and in black communities in and around Ferguson to generate revenue. And it put 
that question of um, fines and fees on the national table. If we if we stopped calling them fines and fees and started calling it a regressive tax, I think mm. that it would become clearer what was what is really going on. In effect, we're exactly. permitting the criminal system in these cities and counties and states where, to be fair, uh, municipalities and jurisdictions are often cash strapped themselves. Right. There, there are lots of reasons why cities and counties need money. And we offer them this opportunity to tax the most vulnerable, the people least able to push back, the people least able to politically complain. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, cities and counties and states take advantage of this opportunity. Again, it's part of the design of the criminal system that we might call um, intentional, that we permit this revenue stream to become one of the reasons that we criminalize. Absolutely. And and in keeping with the reframing of language, I, I have what might be a very dumb question, Professor, I hope you don't mind. But, you know, I understand how the system penalizes poor people more and that something that is a, a fine means it's only illegal for poor people. It's not illegal for people with money. But how do we define the difference between a, a, a fee and a fine? Is that a, an important distinction to make when we're talking about how these punishments are levied? So in a complicated system like ours, uh, our criminal system, there are no dumb questions. In fact, I think we should be asking more, quote unquote, dumb questions because we take so much for granted oh, about our criminal system. They couldn't professor. possibly we be like that. We well, actually here. it is. Okay. Uh, so the difference between a fine and a fee is important legally. Um, but it's worth remembering that for the person subjected to them, I don't, it doesn't make that big a difference. They're still obligated to pay the state money that all too often they don't have. But the distinction has legal significance and it has some, um, normative or moral significance as well. So the fine is the punishment. It is authorized by statute. Uh, So if I jaywalk, um, the statute will say I can be fined up to $100 or $500 or whatever it is. uh, And that is the punishment for the crime. A fee is a non-criminal sanction, we might call it administrative, that attaches to... um, my my moving through the criminal system so court fees database fees transportation fees fees mm-hmm. for them taking uh, a swab of my dna we sometimes right. uh, drug testing fees we sometimes call them tether fees or surveillance or supervision fees all yeah. these costs that the criminal system is incurring because they are now pulling me into um, the criminal apparatus and we permit jurisdictions to charge me as the defendant uh, for those costs. So, yep. so in effect, they're forcing me to pay for my own punishment. And pay for your own free public defender as well. I, I understand the fine is the punishment, but the fee seems to be the fleecing. And that's what's evolved in such an unhealthy way. The idea of charging poor people a fee for the for the allegedly free public defender, I think it's a little tough to wrap our mind around. We 
we are celebrated, actually. The, the American uh, Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Sixth Amendment is celebrated around the globe for the provision of counsel, that we have the right to counsel even if we can't afford it. But the Supreme Court has held that states can create an administrative fee structure to sometimes they call it to recoup, uh, mm-hmm. recoup the costs mm-hmm. of public defense. And so what in effect, what our democracy gives with one hand, it takes away with the other. I sure hope municipalities can turn a profit on their law enforcement, I must say. I mean, Professor, it, it, it's it's such a powerful book. And, and I thought I knew so much about this and I was consistently outraged and, and inspired. But I, I guess the main question is, what would it take for these petty offenses to be treated as petty offenses? I mean, what is dialing this back look like? What kind of reforms would you like to see in our misdemeanor system? Yeah, I just I just want to hang out on your comment there for a second. When, when you I, I think you were quipping when you said, probably. I hope these jurisdictions are turning a profit. And the crazy yes. thing is that they aren't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's much more expensive to run a criminal system, to sweep people in, to jail them, to convict them, to pay prosecutors and public defenders and judges and court costs than it is um than the revenue stream that we are able to extract from poor and working people. So there's all, so in some, just from a, you know, a law and economics perspective, actually it's usually a terrible idea to, to try to, um, you know, to raise money in this way. And this takes us to, you know, to the, really the profound question, what should we do? So in the book, uh, you you know, there are all kinds of, um, reforms and changes that 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 jurisdictions have tried and that I list. But I think the deepest reform is to start giving a damn, is to recognize that we are using our criminal system in a way that's ineffective. It's unfair. It's sloppy. It's sometimes embarrassing. It's inappropriate. And we've let it slip. We've let it slide under the table of of our inattention for too long and we need to stop caring. What happens, just, we need to start caring. And what happens when we do that? We start to notice that we're criminalizing people for their poverty. Well, there are lots of ways to roll that back. We could stop treating, for example, driving on a suspended license for failure to pay fines and fees as mm-hmm. a crime. We could treat it uh, as an administrative matter where people do not are not threatened with suspension and jail and a lifelong um, burden of debt and ruining their credit. We could notice that we disproportionately uh, wield the, the misdemeanor criminal enforcement power in poor communities of color. We, and we have started to notice that. After all, Michael Brown and Ferguson was stopped and arrested uh, and ultimately killed on the allegation of a misdemeanor. Exactly. Eric Garner in New York was stopped and arrested and ultimately killed by police on the allegation of a misdemeanor. George Floyd was stopped and murdered by police on the allegation of a misdemeanor. We have started to realize that this misdemeanor net of policing, sweeping people in is not only unfair and racially biased, it's a violent and dangerous and poses a a threat to our most vulnerable citizens. And so when we start to realize that and to care about it, 
then many of the reforms become obvious. We should decriminalize minor offenses. We should stop charging poor people bail to get out of jail. We should stop um, treating traffic as a crime. We should stop ratcheting up the criminal penalties for traffic. There's so many things that we that become obvious once we start to care. Alexandra Natapoff has had an amazing career. She's gone from being a public defender in Baltimore to being a Harvard law professor. Her essential new book is called Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. Professor, I could talk to you about this for days. I didn't get to half my questions. Thank you so much for joining us. The book is now out in its new paperback form with a new afterword. Please, please, this platform is always open to you. We'd love to have you back to discuss this even deeper. This kind of poverty hurts all of us as a society. And I thank you so much for using your expertise in such a profoundly moral way. John, thank you so much for having me and for this conversation. Absolutely. We got to go. Thank you, Chris. I'm John Fugelsang. Keep it tuned to SiriusXM Progress. Peace. Peace.